Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. eGovernance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Welcome to the Digital Government Podcast. I am Federico Plantera, journalist, sociologist and researcher. And today with me, I have Katrin Neumann-Metcalf, senior legal expert here at the Governance Academy. Welcome, Katrin. Thank you. So today we'll address a topic that is very current and actually regardless of the week that we're in. So perfect for this podcast recording, (laughs) because in any case, we are talking about uh, government's role and responsibility in an age where the discussions on technological sovereignty are, of course, like our uh, day-to-day topics. Uh, so, Katrin, what I would start with is that let's take it, let's say, from the from the beginning. Um, so, the internet came, and we know that. I mean, by now we have digested, let's say, the innovation of the internet, and we know how disruptive it has been, and but mostly that it has created, indeed many cross-border dynamics that somehow could we say maybe have eroded a little bit the the power of national states in uh, regulating and keeping control in terms of jurisdiction of their own national markets? Uh, yes, definitely. And if we go back to what you said at the beginning, then um, as we all who deal with these things know that there were lots of these very romantic notions about internet changing the world and people were going to communicate in completely different ways and they were going to uh, sort of interact regardless of any national borders and everything like that. This very romantic view didn't prove to be very correct, actually, because um, somehow we could see that Uh, We still need some form of rules because not only nice people use Internet, to put it extremely simplistically. So if only nice things went on on Internet, it could have been this new uh, world without any rules or anything like that. But that wasn't the case. Um, And it's a little bit maybe one get almost tired of hearing all of this or how Internet changed everything. And it... It reminds me, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember in the 1960s, you used to see children's books with pictures of what life was going to be like in year 2000, when everybody was going to have their little flying pods and, you know, you would have self-disintegrating cups and saucers and all sorts of weird things. And actually, life didn't look that different in the 2000s as it did in the 1960s. And this whole talk about Internet changing the world had a little bit that flavor earlier on. So that's on the one side, and say, let's not exaggerate the difference. But when it comes to jurisdiction, when it comes to the state's possibility of making rules, making laws, and implementing them, enforcing them, it is a huge difference. It really is a huge difference. Because this idea of things, um, say, happening on a certain territory where it is clear who has the right to to react to this, both to make laws and to enforce them, that territorial aspect has really changed because it's so easy to move. You can actually do things targeted at another country from basically anywhere in the world. And then the other thing that has really changed is that this possibility to sort of move your activities Anybody can do it. There are no huge costs involved because this isn't entirely new. It was possible with direct broadcasting satellites, 
we go back even longer in history, we can see this concept of uh, shipping, of having flags of convenience, of moving, even if you physically didn't have to move much, but sort of moving your operations. But all of this entailed some complication and costs and so, but now it's it's just something you, you just do. So. Yeah, for example, uh, mm, some discussions on this uh, line of thinking came up already in the in the 80s and the 90s when uh, g- national governments, let's say, based on uh, an intent to protect national economies, for example, like started addressing the topic of uh, multinational corporations, which indeed they were like outsourcing, for example, to different countries, to third countries. The, uh, the, um, the carrying out of certain tasks of their supply chain or of their production line due to, let's say, more advantageous economic conditions. Uh, but then uh, what, what is the difference between that, that reflection on the, the economics of multinational corporations and uh, today's discussion on uh, uh, limiting somehow or regulating better uh, big tech? To some extent, it's similar. So, and it's good you mentioned this because one of the problems maybe with thinking around regulation of big tech is that people tend to um, maybe think that everything is entirely new and different. And it isn't. We can we can find many examples of, of other things that are similar enough to learn from it. But I think some differences still exist. And one is what I already alluded to of um, how that also... In, in the sort of pre-tech world or what we should call it or when not tech-dominated world for these big corporations to decide where to place themselves, what, what chains of um, supply and so to use, there were still these kind of costs and efforts involved. Uh, what is really special for online different activities is that there very often is hardly any such consideration of cost and effort, which obviously makes it even more attractive because even with big multinationals, they still may not have gone to the place with the lowest taxes because there were other disadvantages and so on. But but within the tech world, there are often very few obstacles to actually optimizing the situation from the sort of tech side. So So I guess that's different. But then Maybe also what's different for lawyers in the in the big tech is how it influences so many individuals very directly. It influences our lives, our daily lives directly, because we can communicate through these platforms with the whole world. We can also choose from the whole world what we want to do. Or so. so there are many more people involved in this uh, equation of how to decide who makes rules and who can enforce them. And so then it's no longer just between sort of, let's say, some few big companies and governments, but it, it really affects all of us. And I will make a very, I will ask a very blunt question at this point, since we mentioned companies and governments, which is who's making the rules at the moment on the internet? In the sense, we know that there are some uh, monopolies, of course, of, uh, by some um, big tech companies. We know at the same time that there is a tendency, like a trend towards uh, restricting uh, these companies' uh, freedoms that at the moment are almost, uh, are controlled only by themselves at the moment. So who's who's making the rules of the current internet, let's say? Well, I think the rules are made by the big internet companies, actually. The, the most 
um, I don't know if you call them effective or even what word to use, but the most important rules perhaps would be those that they make themselves. So, and we're in a way, and we shouldn't forget that they actually do make some rules. And, and we could say that we are lucky that they do because it's we, we really have no um, way of, um, and I'll, I'll qualify that myself in a minute, of course we do have some ways, but we have no effective way of really influencing what the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter and so do because we don't vote for them. We didn't select them in any way or so. And they are making rules. They have ethical principles and, and they are uh, actually carrying out a certain sort of control of what goes on and so on. Um, I said I was going to qualify this and, and that in two ways. One is, of course, in the market economy, you always have a possibility of influencing as a consumer. So we can stop using platforms we don't like. So, uh, But then that's another question. How effective is that when they have such important positions? Mm -hmm. And then the other qualification is that, of course, they're not insensitive to rules that are made in a more traditional way. And one example of that is this um, right to be forgotten, which is actually quite a strange rule for, for me as a sort of as a human rights uh, lawyer. This is um, a thing that one really has um, mixed feelings about, whether it's good or bad. But the point is that it, it came through the European Union rulemaking, first from actually case law in the European Union, and later it's now in the, in the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that search engines uh, can be asked, and they are then obliged to deal with this request to remove certain information that may be uh, negative to, to individuals. And this uh, started being done by Google, for instance, after this case had been decided by the European Court of Justice. So, so they did implement it, so they didn't do it because they thought it was a good idea, but they followed this European ruling. So, and of course, um, had they ignored it completely, it would have been interesting to see what exactly could be done about it. But I mean, they, they did care. So it's not as if it's there's no effect for the say traditional laws of individual countries or of the European Union. But to go back to this this your your very direct question, then no the main rules are actually made by by the individuals themselves, the platforms themselves. Well individuals, but in a way, yes, maybe even individuals, but the the companies. But see exactly on this last example, uh, sometimes I get the feeling that it there, there could be like a parallel. We could draw a parallel, let's say, in this case, which is a bit, uh, a bit when, in the past centuries, I don't like the the serfs or the people or the plebs were were asking the king, let's say, to concede a constitution, to concede some rules. And I'm wondering if maybe, like, are we in a similar situation somehow in terms of nation nation states and people inhabiting the nation states towards these monopolies, these companies that by now have gotten to the point of having such such an influence and such an importance and uh, um, to such extent in the market, in the free market. Maybe, yes, maybe it's a little bit of an extreme position because, of course, we can still leave. I mean, I don't think if we if we leave Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg would not come after us the way that maybe the king in your example would have sent somebody to to sort of chop your head off or something. With the knights so, yeah. chasing us. And yeah. then <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a little bit better, but it's true that um, uh, these companies are extremely powerful. There's no question about it. And why they are 
powerful more than than just say a very important company in some other sector is that they act almost like say the steam engine did or the invention of electricity or something that it was a thing that was invented but it meant that so many other things changed so it wasn't just interesting to have a steam engine it wasn't a big who went and looked at the steam engine and thought that was cool but it was because thanks to that industries change transport changed and everything and and these big platforms are changing the way we do everything we do commerce we do governance we do communications we we live our daily lives thanks to them so by having such powerful companies that influence so many parts of our lives this is what, what really is is very different from just powerful companies in earlier days that could influence a sector but very rarely so many different aspects of of our of daily lives so if we have established by now in this conversation that internet was n- was never going to be the utopia that many uh, thought it was going to be, let's say, where everyone would uh, love everyone else and we would just, I don't know, walk hand in hand on a <laughs> on a flat land of green grass and flowers. Then uh, what I'm wondering is what can we do uh, now, we in terms of nation states or we, in any case, institutional actors uh, for the way that they are, uh, the for the shape that they have at the moment, let's say. I'm talking about nation states, but I'm talking about supranational en- entities such as the European Union, for example. What can we do to uh, counter a little bit and limit also a little bit as a consequence the risks that might come from such monopolies? Well, the first answer is that it's complicated, which is this very unhelpful answer. But (laughs) actually, I'm not just making it as a sort of uh, simple comment like that, because I think recognizing that is maybe a first thing to to sort of decide that we've already talked of this romantic notion that everything will be wonderful. Okay, so that perhaps now is, is no longer really very seriously sort of considered by anybody. But there's still a lot of this um, like thinking there would be a answer to to this and uh, we would find that answer and for lawyers this often means that then there would be a law mm. we write a law we make a law and then everything is fine i see this a lot when i work with e-governance in different countries that this seems complicated with lots of technology you may not even exactly understand what's changed so let's solve it by writing a law which usually then is Pointless. I mean, it's not. I mean, I'm not saying the whole law is pointless, but it, it wouldn't have been necessary because actually, things are probably in already existing legislation, or it can be handled in some different way. And just by having a law, you solve nothing. There are plenty of uh, completely dysfunctional states which have wonderful legislation. So legislation is one thing in a whole mosaic of of different things of sort of how you then enforce this legislation, but also what is it that makes uh, uh, people follow rules. We all know that this isn't only because we're afraid of being found out. So so this is also a whole sort of concept of education and society. And so so why I'm saying this is relevant to mention that your question, the answer is, is complicated is because we won't solve it by, by writing a text or something like that. So, so then next step is then, so is there something we can do and here i would say at least a little bit maybe hopefully that there might be a couple of things to do 
one is that we should look at already existing rules that may be in uh, all sorts of fairly, how to say, mundane legislation on, for instance, uh, licensing of, uh, of different communications companies and ICT regulation that exists in all countries around the world. We have regulatory agencies for, for communications. And they very often, uh, apart from binding law, they also already now for, for different communications have um, guidelines and best practices and things like that. So there, there might be such thing that could be useful. Competition law, even if I don't think it is this um, magic uh, tool that sometimes you get the impression that the European Commission has perhaps past few years thought sometimes that they can solve the whole problem by by applying competition law very sort of aggressively. So that hasn't really worked. Actually, it's even not worked within the European Union because the European Court of Justice has, has gone against what the Commission has done. And so, so they've also already there shown, which is I mean a good thing, they've shown how complex it is. But in some cases, it might be possible to use. So not to sort of think we solve it by writing a law, but rather that we look at is the law that can be used. And then this um, another very famous catchphrase, which is this multi-stakeholderism, to, uh, to use a new way of making rules. Uh, I think when it comes to the sort of regulatory aspects of the whole digital society, the biggest change is and should be how rules are made, not so much just the content of them, but how are they made and enforced. Um, and the fact that multi-stakeholderism has not been so successful yet, it doesn't mean that one should necessarily give up. And, and one reason not to give up on it is it's difficult to see an alternative, actually. Hmm. Interesting, this last point, because I was wh- while you were explaining it, I was thinking, so does a market dynamic such as a group of people, large group of people, using a certain service provided by a private company uh, give this private company the legitimacy also to sit at the table of the rule making? And um, actually, yes, that's the actually, way we yeah, should no, see. We can yeah, say yeah, yes. Yeah, we <laughs> should say yes. Yeah. We can say yes. And we, we can say this is, uh, I don't know if we can say strange. It's it's new in it's a way. New, yeah. But uh, I would say it, it makes sense because um, if we have concluded that the very traditional lawmaking of states just adopting laws and then enforcing them using the courts and the police and all that this in a very traditional way, we know that that isn't sufficient. I'm not saying it doesn't work at all, but it's not sufficient because of this that we talked about how easy it is to move and how difficult it is to establish even where something takes place and who is actually doing what and so, and this power of the companies. So we need to find an alternative. And if we are going to have successful rulemaking in a different context, then those who are the most affected need to somehow be involved so so yes we we give a, a seat at the table for our activities so. yeah which ma- makes total sense i just wanted to yeah. phrase it like let's say and put it out there and in, uh, in this way but yes and also, and also it's coming uh, mm, i mean it's becoming uh, more and more clear that digital policy 
either made at the state level or at the supranational level basically becomes uh, as important also for the economy itself in terms of competitiveness and uh, uh, market power, let's say. Because indeed the topic that we're addressing is exactly at the intersection between uh, market competitiveness and the power in general. Uh, and we are seeing the meeting point in legislation and uh, matters of like discussions over jurisdiction and changes in that sense. But digital policy then is becoming as important as industrial policy, for example, like in the, in the eyes of, uh, of, of states uh, as, a, as a policymaking area. But then what happened, for example, after World War II with industrial policy, but in general with the way of regulating the economy and protecting certain groups, certain risk groups, for example, from market insecurities. Uh, that, for example, the, in the way that economies are uh, organized and work, they're functioning, that has given birth to different regimes, let's say, and ways of interpreting uh, how much markets should be regulated or kept unregulated. Uh, I'm talking about welfare state debates in this case, but if we were to transpose this line of thinking and this logic to uh, technological sovereignty, even outside the EU. So let's think, for example, of China or let's think of the US as well. Let's make this like three tripolar uh, type of framework. Will we see or are we already seeing different regimes of technological sovereignty in the way that they are differentiated by the way that we approach the regulation of big tech. Mm. No, we're definitely seeing that. And, and this whole world uh, of sort of sovereignty and the, the, the term, the concept of sovereignty is, um, I would say, it's sort of complicated, not just because of big tech, but already for a long time there's been so much communication between countries so this sort of absolute sovereignty doesn't really exist because it's in that case you have to be a country that's extremely isolated but they've already through international trade and international relations there, there are lots of um, uh, aspects of society's life that aren't just dependent on on this particular country and that's not just because some countries like in europe have decided to to join together in something like the European Union, but it, it affects everybody. So in a way, countries are now trying to claw back something that it's um, it's a fiction, actually. It's not just the big tech that has changed this. It's a, it's a whole idea of, of a world in which one cares about what goes on in, in other countries and, has, and one has to care and one wants to care. So we, we have international human rights, for instance, is uh, sort of we want to care, and then we have trade rules that we sort of have to care and so on. Uh, but still, um, when faced with this uncertainty about rulemaking and implementation, then yes, everybody talks about this sovereignty. And it means something quite different. Uh, and I think when mentioning China, that's always a good country to look at that. If you are willing to um, implement your rules in this very sort of harsh way and you do not particularly care about freedom of expression to begin with but you also do not care about your international image in this standing context. let's yeah, say exactly, in, the, yeah. in the eyes of others yeah, yes yeah. reputation exactly then you can do a number of things to to keep more control for instance banning facebook and google and i know that lots of people in china know how to uh, access facebook and google because they've learned this sort of easily so but 
most people, the bulk of people, can't be bothered. So if it is not easily available, they won't use it. So they will use those sites that the Chinese think they should use. And China has managed to create its own uh, internet sphere, in a sense. Other countries are trying similar things. It's less noticeable because the countries are smaller, but Iran and Saudi Arabia, for instance, have done a little bit the same, so that people use a lot of uh, of internet, but not necessarily so much of this international internet. And so so um, it is possible, and um, we already see that this global vision of internet really being the same everywhere that isn't really there. That's maybe part of this package of romantic ideas that are somehow uh, a little bit passé because this, uh, we do now see that this, um, like in other aspects of, of sort of how, how societies are run, is very much influenced by the general approach that countries take to, to freedom of expression and so on. We also have, and you mentioned this development after the Second World War, we also have, of course, ideas that are strong in certain parts of the world, like, say, consumer protection, which is uh, sort of important for, for European countries. This also influenced the approach to, to the cyber world, because that is another thing that people actually should be protected as the sort of weaker party. And, and this is even less relevant in the US, for instance, which in some ways ha or have similar ideas about freedom of expression as, as Europe. So there are these regional differences as well. Perfect. And, I, and I'm sure that in the next years we will see uh, even starker differences, for example, emerge between these different models, because every regime then gives origin to a model, which is the approach that is chosen, that is also politically chosen, like intentionally chosen, that one, with certain features to approach the topic of digital policies. Catherine, thanks a lot for the conversation. Very interesting. Thank you. There are so much, so many things to say about this, so yes, we'll we probably <laughs> keep talking. Yeah, we'll have to yeah. make another yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thanks, so thanks a lot to you for joining and thanks a lot to all the listeners for joining as well. And uh, tune in to the next episode of the Digital Government Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.